Welcome everyone to another episode of the Nedotaku Gaming Podcast. Uh, as usual, I am here with my co-host Robin. Robin, how are you doing? Doing great as per. How are you doing, Dennis? Uh, doing okay. <laughs> I'm pretty tired because I was traveling, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And as we have gotten accustomed to, we have another special guest today, Mr. Mike Bethel. How are you doing? Uh, should I call you Mike or Mr. Bethel? I don't know. <laughs> Call I like I as much as I'd like to say call me Mr. Biffle. No, Mike is Mike is great. Mike is great. Um, call me Mike is great, please. From now on, Mike. Just that's that's the thing. Um, yeah, and no, I'm good. I'm just I'm just I'm just really tired as well. I've had a really long day, but um, yeah, it's good to be hanging out with you. Good to be hang on, hanging out with you as well. Mike is great. Um, so <laughs> if you don't mind. Uh, letting our audience know why you are in fact great uh, just tell them a bit about yourself <laughs> i am um, why am i great i'm not sure i am great i'll be honest with you um no i am um, uh I, i'm an indie developer so I've, i've got a studio we've made a bunch of games uh thomas was alone is probably the most kind of well known we've done uh loads of things we did uh story games like subsurface circular we did a john wick game recently Uh, most recent games were uh, Solitaire Conspiracy and Arksmith. So yeah, we, we make a lot of games, too many games possibly, uh, but yeah. Awesome, awesome. So um, I actually invited you on to talk about that. Um, and I guess my first question is, why game dev? Like, why <laughs> why that one? Apart that, yeah, like why that? Um, I think like a lot of people who who kind of end up in games it's just something i was really into as a kid like i was very i wasn't allowed i didn't have a games console as a kid um my parents didn't want me to have one because they thought i'd waste my life on video games haha <laughs> prove them wrong um and uh and then as i got older uh you know started learning how to make games started playing around with coding and just really enjoyed it and just kind of liked having that control but also kind of liked the puzzle of trying to make a game it was really interesting kind of working out how to solve bugs or make code do things and that kind of just yeah that just got me excited as a kid and then uh you know went through tried to find work doing it got a job you know and then eventually got enough experience and skill that i could kind of do games uh you know on my own made um my own game and that did well enough that i could start a company and just kind of have grown from there but yeah kind of just followed my interest essentially like followed, did did what i wanted to be doing so so much was, was alone was your first like commercial game because I'm, i'm assuming it definitely wasn't your first game right uh it was my first it was my first um indie games that was the first game i made on my own like before that i'd worked for years kind of in other people's games companies so i worked on like you know, a bunch of kind of um, Wii games, PlayStation 2 games, Xbox games, just for other people. So like, just like as a as a designer, just kind of, you know, essentially helping on big teams. Um, and then, you know, mm. Thomas Was Alone was like something I made on my spare time. Um, and then that was the one that kind of, uh, yeah, did well enough that I could kind of quit my day job and, and go and make my own things. But yeah, I think before Thomas Was Alone, I'd worked on about six or seven commercially released games um and you know in various levels of seniority like my first couple of jobs were just kind of placing boxes or making a particle effects like not you know not super high kind of uh seniority stuff but kind of worked my way up from there so you're making thomas was alone and you're releasing it this was this was 2011 right 2012 uh, 2012 2012 thomas was alone came out i think yeah that's when i kind of got into 
indie games because of Xbox uh, Summer of Arcade. So it oh, was yeah. still for yeah. me, it was still like very novel and new and and, and all that. How how did you market it? How like because like <laughs> how did that work? Like, I mean, yeah, like what were your yeah. expectations? I mean, my expectations were definitely low. Like, I remember at the time, like, the plan was, uh, I didn't, in my wildest dreams, think I'd be able to quit my job. I honestly, I was hoping it would pay for, like, a holiday. That was, like, my dream was to go to Disney World. <laughs> or, like, worst case, you know, or like, or, like, buy myself a new computer or something. Like, it was a hobby project. It wasn't meant to kind of do any kind of business. Um, Marketing-wise, like, honestly, back in 2012, it was a completely different kind of ecosystem. You know, there weren't as many indie games coming out. Uh, Steam was very different. Like, the game came out in 2012, and it kind of, I think, it came out in the summer, and, like, no one heard of, heard about it. It didn't sell very well. It sold basically to, so, like, my mates, <laughs> essentially all, like, you know, grudgingly bought a copy to support me. I'd made, you know, a couple of hundred quid and it was going to like, you know, pay towards a new computer or like an iPad or something. And then, um, and then it got on to, I ended up at a, at a, at an event and I just kind of like begged Steam. There was someone from Valve there and I just begged Valve to like, please can my game be on your platform? Uh, cause that, there was no, at the time there was no green light. There was no open door on Steam. You basically had to kind of go and beg someone um so i did and and then because there weren't many games coming out like i think thomas was alone was like on the front page of steam for a week and it's like <laughs> i was talking to another dev wow. about this earlier and it's like that was just such a different world and it meant that you know all of those games that came out in that kind of era could do really well because we just had such an enormous number of players kind of looking at it and seeing it and then of course once that's happened you know lots of people play your game you've got a bit more of a reputation and that's something i've basically been able to kind of keep riding that wave uh, ever since kind of players who've seen that game seen games i've made since and just kind of rolled along with me um but yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of impossible to overstate how lucky i was to start Kind of as early as i did i guess and i get that reputation at a time where bluntly it was much much easier <laughs> and uh and, and that's why i'm always kind of it's always tricky talking about like marketing and how, how do i get my game seen and all that stuff because honestly like i i'm not that clever i just was i just was early ultimately i mean i i wanted to bring this up a bit later but i guess now is a good segue since you brought it up <laughs> is um um like even when I was writing up these questions, and obviously I've like watched your interviews and and I listened to play, watch, listen, and stuff. So I know some oh, of yeah. the answers already. But like for the people who haven't, um, uh, I, I know that Thomas was alone is like an anomaly, right? Like it's just it's weird, it's different. So mm. has, has there been other games released later on that? Um, you've learned from in terms of like marketing and like sales numbers mm. like um do steam sales help do they hinder front page stuff like what works for uh normal games discounting thomas alone because that's just a 
weird alien. Yeah, it's like so so wildly off. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good it's a good way of asking it because yeah, kind of by discounting Thomas was alone, you kind of get I think to the truth of a lot of this stuff. So for us, it's always been about eyeballs. It's always been about you know, <clears throat> I I don't know the number off the top of my head, but like there is a percentage of people if I show the game to a hundred people or if I show the game to a thousand people, then one of them might buy it, right? Like and so ultimately the whole game for us has always been get it in front of as many thousands of people as you can <clears throat> so that you know you sell some copies um and all, you know obviously our numbers are higher than that but like it's it's still like it's still a, a numbers game it's still about just getting as many eyeballs as you can on something and that's kind of how we've kind of always handled it and once you think of it just in those simple terms there's lots of ways you can kind of play with that number so you know a lot of devs uh, do a lot of advertising, a lot of like, you know, putting Facebook ads up, stuff like that. Um, for us, we've had a lot of success kind of basically like playing the algorithms. So just going, okay, how can we get as many people to see this game on, on Twitter, for example, and click a link um, by kind of doing weird tweets or tweets that are interesting enough that people share them, stuff like that. Um, but also like on um, on Steam itself, like getting people to wish lists so that they get a little bit of advertising. Basically, when the game comes out, they'll get an email saying the game's out. It's all about just kind of maximizing those eyeballs because we do have essentially like an, an entire infrastructure now around video games where you're always being bombarded by video game adverts, right? You're always being bombarded by options, things you could be getting. Um, so the only real game that we can play as developers is just try and get our game in front of people. Um, in our case, we're lucky because obviously we have kind of a an audience who already pays attention. You know, we have like, you know, my Twitter, uh, Play, Watch, Listen, which a lot of people listen to, um, you know, our, our whole like raft of ways we can get kind of people from outside of uh, the Steam ecosystem to like hear about our game and maybe go check it out. Um, for people who don't have that, it's an, it's much more of an uphill struggle, but I still see it happen every day with indies kind of, you know, doing a really interesting animated GIF of their game or like getting uh, an interesting article written about their work. You can kind of still do it, but it is about attention seeking ultimately. And if your game doesn't have something about it that is like so unignorably interesting that people are going to want to talk about it or going to want to share it, then I think in the current kind of you know the current kind of culture and the current kind of gamer space you're you're not going to be seen and it's something that when i look at games that are doing well now from developers who maybe it's their first or or at least a very early game from a studio it's always the stuff that you just see and you just want to tell people about because it's so weird looking or it's so fresh or it's you know it's doing something different it's 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 a novelty you know it's interesting in that way and i think often devs kind of miss that because we we focus because we're nerds we want to make good games right so we focus on making like the best version of a game and i think sometimes we can forget <laughs> that we're vying for attention so you just have to kind of do anything you can to stand out um and get those numbers up get the number of people who are going to hear about your thing as high as possible so that a subset of those people are actually then going to try and pick it up mm, interesting i i always wondered like the whole wish list thing is like why why are all the indie developers like wish list mm. wish list wish list and then you just and I've just understood now, it's like, of course, it comes as an email, like, when mm -hmm. it gives out. That's very clever. Very, very it also, clever. <laughs> it also, what's interesting is, and again, this is like being, being, you know, paying attention to the algorithm, like, 
effectively what we're trying to do is we're also trying to convince these stores that our games are interesting you know so a platform like steam this is true on youtube this is true on any uh, algorithmically led platform there are going to be um there are, the, the system is looking for winners and it's looking to elevate winners you know if it, there's very few uh, if you look at like the, the the bell curve of of youtubers right you've got these mega successful youtubers and the vast majority no one's watching their videos and there's not a lot of people in between because essentially the algorithms is either going to bury someone who's not performing or they're going to massively elevate someone who is and so mm. the way that we do it is we basically try and make our game in every case look as good to the algorithm as possible so we're basically just trying to get anything from you as a as a player as a person who's interested that's going to convince the algorithm from your interactions with these websites that you like it and that it's interesting to you because that makes it more likely for the these websites to show other people so if if our game gets thousands of wish lists then somewhere, you know, in a in a sum that we can't even see, the computer decides. Oh, I guess that game's interesting enough. I will I will make users more happy if I show them this game because this game is popular. And you can often kind of like almost like um, <laughs> kind of hotwire the system and like convince it that you're doing well before you're doing well. <laughs> Uh, and then that kind of becomes a thing you can you can you can ride. So yeah, whenever you see indies doing something like that seems like that's not selling a copy of their game, why would they be pushing for that? Usually that's what it is. It's trying to it's trying to convince a faceless algorithm that your content matters. Same reason that YouTubers want you to comment because commenting is perceived by the YouTube algorithm as a sign that a video is interesting. Therefore, it gets served to more people. Um, so they're trying to push you to have those interactions that tells the computer this faceless, you know, machine that we're all trying to please uh, that the thing is of, of value and is of interest. So yeah, that's why we that's why we wish list. That sounds dreadfully dystopian. It sure. really is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet in 2021, right? It's absolutely terrifying. Thomas was alone is, is is you know does successfully, and then uh, you decide to go full-time into this uh, on your own, I guess, in your own company. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you follow that up? Like, what's what's <laughs> going through your head? How do you, like, what, yeah, like, what, tell me your thought process from there. <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, I kind of, my initial thought process was like, I got, I just got really lucky basically like that was my i even i even feel like i knew back then that like this was kind of you maybe get two or three successes at that level in like a lifetime of working right so i was like okay either i'm a genius which is very unlikely or like this was a lucky moment and i need to just kind of extract as much value uh in terms of like what i'm going to do with the rest of my life as possible from this kind of accidental situation i found myself in so for me, it was really, it was about like what, like, you know, I've been given the dream, you know, obviously the game made a lot of money um, and gave me a lot of kind of access to people and and like, you know, an ability to basically make whatever I wanted next. Um, so for me, that was the moment where it's like, okay, what's the, you know, basically how do I, what's the gift I need to give like 12 year old me? Like, what, what would he want me to do in, in this situation? Like, the kid who's, like, obsessed with games and has all these weird ideas for games he wants to make, like, what's the best favor I can do that person? 
Um, and that was why it was a game called Volume, which was basically Metal Gear Solid fanfic. Like it was literally like an ode to everything I loved about Metal Gear Solid when I was a teenager. Um, and uh, and that was basically what I kind of focused on next. And not really like a business decision, to be fair, like not something that I went into like because I thought it was like the best possible investment of money and resources, but just kind of a, hey, this, this has happened. This might never happen to me again. I'm gonna just, I'm going to play out the save file. Like I'm going to, you know, in the same way as like when you're playing a video game, you know, when you're playing a video game and you know, you're going to like stop playing for the night, but you, you're, you, you want to kind of just play ridiculously because why not? Because this save doesn't matter. Cause you know, you're going to reset um, that kind of mentality of like, well, what's the, what's the craziest, coolest thing I could make that I've always wanted to make. And that, that was volume, you know, kind of just committing to something that was like my teenage dream. Um, and then, you know, off since then, after that, you know, other projects came along and I, I started trying to build a company and, you know, bring in employees and stuff like that. And, and now I definitely make more kind of considered business choices. But at that point, it was definitely like, just go for it. Just go for the thing you've always wanted to do, um, which was maybe not the most mature choice, but it, it definitely felt like the right one. I still think it was really to just kind of commit to doing something interesting. I mean, I thought it was interesting. That's the game that I... I first played. Uh, oh, from, cool! But then I'm I'm a Metal Gear fan, so <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what got me, I guess. <laughs> oh, fair play. Me too. I got in late with Metal How? Gear. <laughs> oh yeah, well you came in like with five. With Rising, actually, Revengeance. <laughs> oh, Revenge! <laughs> that's a cool game. I love that game. I'm wondering, um, do you have any background in like? entrepreneurship or like management. business management <laughs> yeah. not even not even a little bit no no i was i was i was good at making computer games but i was not a business guy at all when i started um i i i kind of you know definitely like with thomas was alone because it was a hobby i didn't really think about the business side of it you know we we literally i the only reason i started i say we because i now it's a we but back then it was just me i literally like started the company just because steam required you to be a business to sell on the platform so that's the only reason the company exists and the only reason it's called bithel games is because i literally just couldn't come up with a name so it's like i'll put my <laughs> name down as the company whatever um because it was only meant to be like on the back of, <laughs> of a website because i again at this point still thought it wasn't going to make any kind of serious money um and you know that was that was kind of this process there. And then about halfway through volume, um, making volume, which took about, I think two or three years, um, about halfway through that, I realized like, no, I need, I need like business help. I need someone who can help me out here. Um, and that's when I brought in Alexander Slowinski, who's my business partner, um, who basically came in and like turned it into a real company, you know, uh, <laughs> made, the, made, made the books make sense, made it so we were set up so we could uh, hire people. And honestly, much more importantly than that, it's just now become kind of my colleague and my my partner in making every major decision that we kind of, we make decisions now based on essentially a mix of what I think would be like funny or interesting for us to do and what he thinks will actually like realistically be able to make money. And if, if a project is like both interesting or exciting or funny to me, 
and also like I can convince him that it might make some money, then that's what those are the things we end up making. Um, and it's kind of that weird mix of like me being kind of a bit weird and a bit kind of interested in doing whatever the hell I want and him being the kind of the grown up in the room that's kind of led to a lot of, I think, good choices because we make weird decisions. The games we make are often very strange or different from each other. You know, we should be making Thomas Was Alone 6 right now. Like, we should absolutely have just kind of committed to some to a franchise and we probably <laughs> will be much richer. But, like, I think the balancing act of the two of us has kind of led to good places. You mentioned something about mm. now it's a we. And you, of course, mm. got in the, the the mature mind. The adult, <laughs> mind, the adult in the room. That's Are there absolutely. any other people? Like, uh, like uh, what's your current size right now? We, so in terms of like full-time employees, I think there's uh, five or six of us in just in terms of like like full-time kind of uh, uh, team members. And then what we have is a, like a lot of contractors who come in and out based on the games we're making. Um, mm -hmm. We're actually, I think, about to kind of expand quite a bit uh, to make the project we're currently making. But yeah, generally we've always been like a small hub of kind of full-time people and then just kind of scaled up and down with contractors kind of as made sense. And that's worked really well for us actually. And I think worked well for the people we brought in. We've definitely like, we found ourselves able to work with like a really cool um, range of people just because, you know, as contractors, we can basically go to like really talented people and say like, hey, give us like three months of your time and we'll do something cool together and then you can go and do something else. And and with the kind of, especially with people who are like highly in demand, that's amazing because it means we can get, we're literally having at the moment a concept artist we're working with who, in my opinion, is just one of the coolest concept artists working in video games right now. And he literally had a gap between jobs. He had like this, this uh, I think it's, uh, it was an eight, eight week window, six week window, somewhere like that between his last job and his next job. And we're just gonna, we're just grabbing him for that time to come in, do some awesome stuff for us on his way through. And we've done that so many times that it kind of, it's, it's meant that we can often kind of punch above our weight because we can just grab like, you know, individuals who are really talented for a short period of time um, when they're available. Um, things like um, Andy Serkis, uh, who's like, you know, uh, you know, Gollum in Lord of the Rings and, and well, he's in everything, right? Um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah. he, he was someone, he was someone who like, he literally, I think it was uh, his kid's birthday or something. He had like, in, he had to be at one end of London and literally we just like managed to get him for like three hours as he was passing through. We basically found like a recording studio on his route somewhere. And we just kind of got him in, recorded him, got him out like in a few hours. And it meant that again, like we got a Hollywood star in our game because we could find a way to kind of fit around his schedule. And we've we've done that, we pulled that trick several times and it's worked pretty well for us. Um now we're starting to kind of build a, a bigger kind of full-time team just because um it's it's cool to have that consistency and it's cool to have uh to be able to kind of build and cultivate talent in that way. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a weird ride in terms of like the number of people I've gone to work with has been really much higher than most devs, I think, just because of that kind of contractual approach. That's really interesting. It's not something <laughs> you ever think of when you you know when you don't actually work in games dev or mm. software dev or anything like that. You know that that that's outside of my field. So thinking mm. of that sort of 
adapt, adaptive way to 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 the people you work with and employ that's that's an that's a eye-opening to say the least <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely got like downsides it's one of it's especially like it's definitely something i say it also massively depends which com- which country you live in like that's it's one of the benefits the uk has like a lot of safety nets a lot of like social services basically that we have you know uh socialized uh healthcare and and we have uh you know um Lots of, lots of public services that other countries don't have. And that means that people are more comfortable doing contract work here. Like in America, for example, like I know that devs would much rather have a permanent job because that means they have healthcare. So there's a, you know, a very good reason for you to be in like full-time work in the States. Here, there's a bit more of that kind of freedom for people to kind of uh, move between jobs. Um, and yeah, that's worked out well for us. And I think worked out well for the people we've worked with. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely advice that's not universally applicable. But yeah, it's worked for us. Better get rid of them Tories if you want that to continue. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> that was that was perfectly delivered, yeah, Dennis, was- because of your um because of your art on Zoom. That was the perfect joke delivery with that facial expression and what you said. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> also going off of that of the similar tangent uh, mm. you know you've said you've got the management guy and then you're the games dev guy so when it comes to you you said he does the business the more business side of things oh you want to you want to know what the full-time people are doing right no 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 what what, those... what, what oh, no, i okay. kind of want to get the idea of is or does he like i guess you can say it in employee relations human resource do does he also take care of all that sort of stuff is it like because of bringing him in is it more like mm. you can focus solely on game dev or have you been forced to learn some management skills because you know the studio has your yeah. name in it yeah the leader yeah so have you been like forced to pick up some of those sorts of skills the management skills yeah are- no exactly yeah so so he so he runs the business i would he he definitely like i think at, at our scale like you kind of do a bit of everything but definitely his focus isn't kind of the the, the people side of things the or at least the kind of the the people management side of things he he's he, you know he does payroll but you know he's not like doing day-to-day management for that we have well it was historically me doing that we now have an amazing project manager who who does a lot of that um does most of that frankly um and uh but yeah no i've definitely had to learn to manage and it's not something that i don't i don't think i have a natural gift for it to be honest it's definitely something i had to kind of learn as i go and and struggled with to be honest like it's not something i've always gotten right um which is one of the reasons we brought in a project manager um i definitely you know there's definitely a thing in games where you know if you get good enough at uh technical discipline so if you get good enough as a coder or good enough as a 3d artist or good enough as an animator eventually someone's going to try and make you uh an, a, a manager so you know a design manager uh, an, an art manager uh, a, a code manager like it's 
they're they're going you you know you get promoted out of doing the job into being a manager and for some people i think that comes really naturally but for me not so much it's definitely not kind of something i was as good at i think i've gotten better over time um and i think i i benefit from having people around me who are fantastic at it um but yeah it's been uh, it's been a learning process to say the least for sure well that's cool i get that i get that <laughs> you've been forced to learn things outside of your skill set right for sure like that's definitely a part of it and i think and to be honest i love it like i love that that's been something i've had to learn um i think all of the things you learn along the way you it's 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 kind of a balancing act and this is definitely something i see from lots of people who are kind of working their way <clears throat> into starting their own companies or like you know even people who are many years into that you you are always learning you're always learning kind of new new skills because you have to do you have to handle payroll you have to handle contracts you have to talk to lawyers you have to uh work with partners you know there's lots of like skills you're going to pick up along the way mm-hmm. what i think is really useful is as you go through that and as you make games and you sell games you start to be able to work out which jobs you do and don't want to do and you can start hiring people who can do the thing you don't want to do and that's been or they can do it just much better than you and that's definitely been we joke about it in the company that like essentially we hire or we did for a few years we hired based on like what's mike worst at right now like what does mike <laughs> need the most help with like what's the problem we're trying to solve so you know initially it was like okay we need to get the business sourced out so i bring in a business guy and then it's like well mike's not a very good artist so we bring in an artist and you know then we notice that like the project management could do with help so we bring in a project manager and it's just this like this increasing ever increasing kind of uh solving problems with my skills set um and we're and that's actually still carrying on you know we're still hiring people there's a there's a job i know we're going to be um going out there and trying to find someone for soon which again 100 like literally the job description for it says mike's always done this job but we're now looking for someone else to do it better you know like that's basically <laughs> like um so so yeah you kind of it's a balancing act of like learning new skills which is brilliant but also being realistic about what you want to be doing and what you're you know what someone else can come in and be infinitely better than you are and of course that's a freedom you you basically earn by selling stuff like you can, that you make the money that can pay people salaries it's not something you can do from day one but it's mm-hmm. definitely like a problem you start to solve you know year you three, four, five of a company yeah exactly yeah right but something you mentioned there working with partners hmm so where to begin with uh first of all i know like in the games industry like or not just the games industry i think je- in life in general you know connections mm. and all that sort of stuff uh, matters and naturally sure. your view as a for as a person who used to work in game dev for other companies before you went independent mm, mm. the types of connections you probably built were with uh game devs as well people in a similar yeah. field mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when you got on your own and you had to start working with you know the people you normally wouldn't work with you know the publishers partners and all that sort of stuff uh, yeah how was that sort of experience how did how did you transition into that how does how did that all work 
Um, it was interesting. Like, I definitely wasn't great at it from the start. Like, uh, like I definitely like signed some bad contracts and made some bad choices like early on in terms of working with publishers for sure. Um, you know, I didn't make the best choices. Like, you definitely <laughs> you learn as you go to an extent, and to an extent, like you can't really learn that from anyone else. You kind of have to make your own mistakes to a to a certain extent. Um, I think I was always lucky, and I'm quite good at talking to the people i'm quite good at communication and kind of getting to know people but also kind of working out what they what they need from me or what they want from me um and that kind of as a general skill definitely helped me through kind of uh kind of working with publishers working with platform holders that kind of thing but i think if anything i was actually a bit too timid when i first started i think i definitely could have like you know done better deals after thomas was alone i could have got more support from people if i'd asked for it um, so I think I think you know it's 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 a it's a difficult one to navigate, but like I just think it's again a skill that I've picked up and learned as I've gone and gotten better at, and and it is one of those jobs actually that I think I I am really good at now, and I think uh, you know it's not it's not something we're trying to hire someone to do biz dev for the company, for example, because I think that is an aspect of the business that I'm pretty good at um, and that I'm I'm just, you know useful for. Um, that's not the truth, not, not the case with everything, but but that's that's worked out pretty well. Okay, that, that's pretty cool that, you know, you've kind of gotten used to that because uh, when, <laughs> <think> you, so. <laughs> when you hear uh, lots of, you know, when as a bystander, as an onlooker, mm. I guess, as an onlooker to the industry, you know, the constant thing you're hearing is that, oh, the publishers are absolute hell to deal with. They're the <laughs> worst. Everything is the publisher's fault. And... It's <laughs> sometimes it is, sometimes it is, sometimes they're terrible. But I think generally, generally, I think there's just a lot of good people in the games industry in all areas of the games industry. So let's say your next game sells like Skyrim, right? Like it's just forever selling. <laughs> That'd be um, nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> would you have the inclination to expand to like AAA level? Um, it's come up a couple of times. I I think the thing for me is that I will... The, the biggest challenge actually is that there's no organic way to turn what I do right now into AAA. Um, I think a lot of indies have run into this issue where essentially there's, a, there's definitely like a scale of indie game which goes up to around the kind of two to five million mark um is like the the most expensive indie game you've seen is in that kind of zone and then if you want to go to AAA, you're looking at stuff like you know 20 to 30 million and up right so we're you know we're we exist in the kind of in that smaller indie space and there's not really a lot of games anymore that exist in between those two scales of production and therefore, if you want to kind of organically, carefully and considerately kind of grow your company towards that AAA, it's really hard. Um, unless you have like, I, I guess, unless you have lots of AAA experience or you start big um, or you have a hit, as you say, that is just so gargantuan that it kind of jumps that fence for you. But I can't walk into a room uh, at a publisher and say, hey, <laughs> can I have can I have $20 million, please? Because um, I've not, I've not got the track record to do that. Um, it's come up a couple of times where people have come and made those kind of 
made those kind of offers or let let it be known to us that they're interested in doing something like that but to be honest like for me i'd be scared i wouldn't know how to do it i wouldn't know uh how to spend that much money frankly and the amount of infrastructure and talent you need even just on the kind of project management and hr level right is so astronomical that i just i don't know if that's a jump i would be able to make I think in the world where we had a hit like that, we would be much more likely to do what we've done in the past, which is, you know, invest it into other indie projects, um, make multiple other weird, you know, projects that we love, scale sideways rather than up is probably the way we would handle it. Um, that's generally what we've done in the past when we've you know made more money than we were expecting to is we've gone, oh, well, let's put this into, you know, a couple of interesting other projects that we want to kind of throw some support behind. Uh, that seems to work better for us. I, I don't think I don't think I would be able to turn my studio into a AAA studio. I don't think I'd want to, and I think I think honestly, like I wouldn't expect AAA developers to you know to respect that I could direct a project, frankly, at that scale. Like that's such a specific skill set. You know, people who direct AAA projects generally have kind of gone through the AAA kind of process and worked their way up through the ranks and got that kind of awareness. I'm not sure someone like me would be would have the experience basically to kind of step into that role kind of from out of nowhere um we'll see like maybe i'll feel differently in a decade but right now that 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 would be kind of my answer to that question i'd like to see that happen at least with one dev or something because i don't i don't think we have an example of that unless you count like like earlier in the industry um you know someone like I mean, you could look at someone like, say, Peter Molyneux and look at uh, kind of his early games. You could definitely equate in scale to like a, an indie game or uh, say Cliff Blazinski, right? Like he's, mm. you know, he started with like Jazz Jack Rabbit, which is just a 2D platformer. That's definitely a game you could see an indie studio make nowadays. And of course, he ended up making kind of big AAA shooters. But in order for those kind of careers to have happened, you were still kind of basically in the one company as the company grew and scaled and as the industries grew and scaled, right? Whereas now if you look at like, and I, I know quite a few kind of creative directors on on the big AAA franchises, and I just, it, to me, it's a completely different, it's like they're working in a different industry to an extent, like, like the difference in skill game directors, but it's definitely a different set of skills that they possess than the average indie game dev does. Um, I think I think that's it's interesting seeing that because we've definitely seen that go the other way where you have like a creative director working in AAA who's jealous of you know indies and their freedom and comes out of that and finds it hard because because the you know the skills you acquire when you're basically running you know a 300 person team are more indirect you know you're 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 not working with 300 people directly every day you're working with you know that that rung in the hierarchy below yours where you're kind of working with like 10 incredibly talented leaders in their own right who are then leading their sub teams and and going from that kind of situation that's a different skill set to me than like me booting up unity and importing some art from the 3d artist and getting everything working the way i want it to so we can like demo it at a games event it's a completely different kind of set of skills um, one's not more worthy than the other. It's just, I think they are different job paths and job roles. So I don't know. I think in both cases, like that creative director coming from AAA could learn how to do my job. And maybe, you know, I could learn how to do the AAA job. I suspect that it's more predicated on experience and um, career than 
you know, for me, than, than, than the other way around. So I imagine I would be more challenged by that transition than a, a AAA person would be because they just have to learn unity. I have to learn corporate. <laughs> you know, it's a very, it's a, to me, that's a much more complex thing. <laughs> just screw everyone over, Mike. Like that's, that's how it works. Well, that's the, I mean, that's, <laughs> but that's, what's interesting is that's not how it works. Like creative directors generally, when you meet them, they're actually the opposite of that because they have to be, uh, you know, there's obviously there's monsters as you'd expect, but like generally most of the ones who are successful and consistently successful um, are good collaborators. Like they're good people, people, yeah. you know, because ultimately that's yeah, basically their job. Yeah, no, they're not exactly they're not writing code. They're they're a, they're a cheerleader. They're a, they're the captain of the ship. Yeah, it's a it's a bigger it's a bigger role than that, and actually, yeah, the people the the, the interpersonal skills of, of most creative directors I've met have been genuinely incredibly impressive. Like you can see why people follow them into battle. You know, they've got that kind of Captain Picard vibe. You know, they've got that kind of energy, um, and yeah, that's something I'm incredibly impressed by. But I think it's a completely different skill set than the kind of pluckier indie pirate ship. You know. Mm. <laughs> Is it, there's something you mentioned there that difference in scale mm. which is like you know there's that there's that big gap uh, you said yeah oh, what two to five million and then the next big jump is oh 30 million or something like that yeah so, it's it's lower than that it's probably like closer to like 10 to 15 million but yeah there's a big gap there there's a phenomenal gap there yeah. there's yeah so you've got that big gap and mm. I think that gap is normally not as represented as you like, similarly in coverage. So you mm. see that in the industry, when there's coverage of specific of games and other stuff, obviously AAA stuff will get more coverage. And that also extends to the sort of, uh, what can I say? work-related problems, employee-related issues, mismanagement, mm. all that sort of mm. stuff. You see that stuff from all of these big AAA and, you know, I don't like this word, but it exists, quadruple-A studios. <laughs> I, 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 I love that by the end of my career, someone's going to, they're going to be like five A's or six A's, <laughs> like we can get to that stage. But, but to be fair, those those managerial kind of problems do exist at the indie scale as well. Like I think yeah. AAA yeah. rightly gets a bashing for being, you know, for having awful people working there. But there's awful people in India as well. We're not immune to it. Um, likewise, mistake, like, you know, honest mistakes can happen at all scales as well. And like, it's, I think we have the same mix of good and bad people probably at both scales it's just in triple a i guess there's more people around so the chances of a really awful person being there are higher and also culturally there's often a lot of structure that allows for awful people but i yeah i i i, I always worry when when i hear indies kind of celebrated as like we're the we're the perfect space where everyone's incredibly respectful and brilliant it's, that doesn't gel with the reality of, of what I've seen and what I've heard kind of in the indie space. So I think there's, there's it, complacency would be a bad thing for sure. Yeah, I, I think that kind of goes into what are some of the issues you'd like to really highlight that are kind of more unique to the indie space that, uh, that bystanders, of, bystanders and uh, onlookers to the industry 
kind of can't get because oh when the bloomberg article mm. comes out it's like oh uh, it's about the big triple a studio about right? the big triple yeah. a studio so they kind of people like me kind of don't have that exposure to the unique yes i mean problems like <laughs> the unique problems of indie yeah. So all of those problems also exist in indie. That's the first thing to say. All of the things you read in Bloomberg also do exist in the indie world, and and the indie the indie industry needs to take responsibility for that and, and improve it. But I think like in terms of the specific problems, I think the biggest one that always jumps out at me is that we're not brilliant. At, and, and I put myself in the same um, the same bracket. This is true of me as well. I don't think we're brilliant at kind of bringing in new talent. Like I think. Uh, a lot of indie studios, because the uh, you know the time is always short and the money's always short, um, you know you make decisions which are cautious and you kind of would would more are more likely to hire people who are more experienced. Um, and then when you do hire juniors, you're likely not going to have the infrastructure in place to kind of support them and kind of improve uh, their skills and provide mentorship and that kind of thing. Like that's something we've definitely struggled with. Um, as a company, but I think I think most of indie struggles with is is how do you how do you ensure that there is a future generation of indie game devs, um, and how do you make sure that those people kind of have the opportunities they need to kind of grow, um, and that's a struggle. That's a real challenge because it's in a in a AAA environment. You obviously have HR departments and you have um, you know uh, <laughs> uh, you know onboarding schemes and kind of ways of bringing people into the company and, and making them feel welcome and, and giving them the training they need and all that stuff. In indie, it's usually a little bit more uh, difficult to achieve all of that. And, so, and some people come in and, and, and it's great. Um, others, I think, find it more challenging. And, and you know, definitely like on a, on a company level, I think all indie companies could stand to be better at, at create, providing those on-ramps and, and providing that support. So I think that's one that we haven't worked out as an industry yet. Something I've been struggling with for years, trying to work out how to get that right. Um, but um, so that's that's worth highlighting. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's that's particularly an issue of indie game dev. <laughs> I think there's. I think I think as as the, I think there's a lot of bad advice and bad advice giving in the indie space. I think because it is such an aspirational kind of area. Like there's like it's not just like you know young people and gamers who want to be indie game devs i know plenty of triple a game devs who would love to be kind of in an indie position able to make whatever they want blah 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 and i think because of that aspiration because it's so uh, exciting potentially to people um i think it's it's some somewhere where we do tend to listen to the positive stories less than the negative stories so you definitely get a lot of survivor bias in the way that people talk about indie games um you know uh you know and that's that's not no one's trying to be trying to be awful or bad in doing this but like the people who we hear from a lot you know people like me right like the reason i'm invited on the podcast like this one is because i've had success and it's interesting and there's stuff we can talk about and lessons learned but what you don't have um as often is the people who you know who made games the same week thomas was alone came out and then just don't exist in the games industry anymore they've left they've gone and done other things because their game sold 10 copies you know there is there is a number of alternate universes where that's me right like where i kind of didn't have a hit game out the gate and, and made different choices and i think therefore that can create situations a where people think success is uh, more guaranteed than it is although i think we're getting better at conveying that to the audience that's not the case but i think even more importantly and this is a societal problem but this is <laughs> we live in a society but <laughs> it's also true of indie for sure is that we assume that people who are successful are clever 
right? Like we assume that because someone has had a, a hit game or has made a lot of money or has made a great game that we love that's really well programmed um, or really well designed or really well written or looks beautiful, that person is clever, that that person is responsible for what happened. As, a, as, a, as people, we, we kind of are very quick to assume intention. We're very quick to assume that something that is happening is happening because someone wanted it to happen or because someone designed it to happen. And that's honestly really risky because it means that we can elevate people um, who are giving you know rubbish advice or who got lucky or don't know why they were successful. You know, if I'm so clever, why you know why was Thomas was alone a mega hit? And my other games have done very well, but like why am I not making hit after hit after hit at that same scale? Uh, the answer is because I'm not that clever because I got lucky. Um, I'm clever enough to stay around and keep making games, and that's you know that's good. But like at the same time, like you know, we it, it's it can be very uh, intoxicating to people who've had success to be interviewed a lot, to be talking a lot, and you see it go to some people's heads, and you see them kind of giving advice where the advice is do everything I did, and you'll be a star. There's a really good um, I don't know if it's a TED talk, it's something where it's a guy talking about winning the lottery as if he's an indie game developer. So he's like, you know, guys, what I've got to tell you, so. I won $10 million um, in the lottery and I'm gonna here to tell you how to do the same thing. Okay, step one is you've got to go to this specific news agent. Um, and if you go to that specific news agent, uh, you buy a bottle of milk and you pick up your ticket for the lottery and you make sure you put down these numbers and he puts up some numbers behind him. He's like, do these numbers. And if you do all of that, like I did, and you work really hard, you can win the lottery too. And it's a great, it's a really funny talk because obviously that's nonsense, right? <laughs> like that won't work. And I think a lot of indie advice falls into the same kind of category where we have, we we assume that people are very clever. We assume that people's success is because they're clever and not just because they were the lucky person yeah. who happened to be going into the right news agent that morning. Um, so yeah, I think those are the, those are the biggest issues I see in indie. And to be honest, they're issues that have been around for a while. And we, we, we still, we're all still trying to work out. No, I, I get that. I get that. It's yeah, like like this is very insightful sort of thing. Which, unless you're deep into the indie space and you kind of know a lot of more people in the indie space, you don't really get exposure to that sort of thing. No, right? Yeah, because you only hear the stories of like the people who've like the success stories because they're the fun stories, right? They're what we click yeah. on. They're what we're interested in. We want we want to see someone do well. That's exciting. That's fun. We feel good for them. We're we're happy for them. We also kind of secretly hope maybe that could happen to us as well. You know, it's a it's a positive, cool story. But you know, it's not it's not as common maybe as it looks. <laughs> I get that. Sorry, that was a bit of a downer answer to your question. I apologize. You did ask me what the problems were. I, I so know. I that, that's what I wanted to hear. That, that is what I wanted to hear. <laughs> it's all great. People should follow their dreams. Make games. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> Anything to add on, Dennis? Um, I just wanted to add on as well onto that is um, like the lack of women in leadership roles and like, mm. people of color as well, I think, in the even in the indie space is not as prevalent as as uh, in European countries anyway. It's not as prevalent in Western countries, whatever. Whatever Western means. Um, <laughs> Western relevant relative to where, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is a problem for some of the games that I've uh, played that are designed or written by women are just different, right? They, 
maybe not good sure. maybe not great some are great but they're just different and i i like to see different perspectives on things so yeah i think it would be easier to do that in the indie space than in the triple a space because obviously someone will say oh it's a risk all oh, the money whatever <laughs> and obviously it is a risk in the indie space as well but like at, at least that should be like it should be a little bit easier you you'd hope so you'd hope so and i agree with you diversity of, of voices makes just more interesting games like even if you're a you know a selfish white gamer who doesn't care about any of these issues you should still be you know on the side of wanting uh diversity because you'll get better you'll get at least more variety of games and therefore because there's more games there'll be more better games um and they'll be from voices you've not heard which will make them more interesting to you um so i, I think everyone should be pushing for that um, yeah, I think it's a generalized problem. It's it's definitely not just indie or just AAA, but I agree with you. It should be it should be uh, better in indie. There's a lot of really good um, kind of schemes and groups who are working towards it. Um, ultimately, uh, a big part of it is going to be uh, raising up voices, both raising up the voices of the people who are who are making games, who are you know not boring white guys like me, but also you know things like this podcast where you can you can choose to invite more people who are not me onto them you know um and i you know i i do think uh i do think that we all have a responsibility right to kind of improve and and diversify the culture we're presenting uh so i you know just daft stuff like on twitter just making sure that like you're not just sharing you're not just retweeting uh, the same boring ten white guys, right? Like, and I'm, I'm I'm in that group, right? Um, I think any I think players in general can absolutely um, uh, help with this and and kind of create that space uh, and help to make that space. I also, you know, I think yeah, I think basically all, everyone ultimately shares responsibility to solve it. Um, I'm in a position which is great where I can hire people uh, and give people like early jobs. There's obviously all the challenges that I expressed, but it's also definitely like a level of responsibility for me as a studio owner that I, I should be hiring diversely to kind of create those opportunities to get people started. Um, and then so they can kind of come into the industry and massively surpass me and make better shit than I do. Um, so yeah, that's that's everyone has responsibilities. Different people have, in my opinion, more responsibility. I put myself in that group to kind of do more uh, and to help people. Uh, it won't be an instant thing, it never is. But hopefully if everyone's kind of working towards it, it will, it will improve. And I, I think it is, it feels like it is, but like, again, I'm not the guy to have an opinion on that really. So I guess we'll uh, dramatically shift from <laughs> super serious talk to uh, one that I've been very curious to ask a game dev. How? Yeah. Accurate and or ridiculous is Mythic Quest. Oh, it's too good. It's too good. I really like Mythic Quest. I I had to stop watching the second series because it actually started stressing me out. Like, because it's I think <laughs> so. There's a few there's a few layers of Mythic Quest, right? Like, it definitely bears saying that it is made by a games company, right? Like, it is made by a game studio. Especially, it's made by a game studio uh, which has had some very negative stories about it in the press. Um, and there are definitely episodes of the show where they make light of issues that are clearly real issues at that company. 
I'll say that and then move on. Um, but in terms of like uh, how it represents the industry, it simplifies for sure. It definitely kind of, it, it, you know, games are made by much bigger teams. You know, there's much more um, layers of like management and complexity of kind of the company structure than is presented. But you have to do that in a TV show. Um, I would say that the problems they're generally uh, kind of trying to solve in that show, the, in terms of like, you know, game development problems and challenges, there's a lot there that like rings bells for developers are like, yeah, I've been in that situation. Um, but yeah, that second series, I just found really hard to watch. Like the first series, I loved the second series. I think just because they started touching on issues that I've seen in games companies, not, not my own necessarily, but like stuff I've experienced. Um, that I was just a little bit kind of like, this is a bit too much like real life. This is this is not funny anymore, right? Like I'll, I'll go and watch a sitcom about literally any other job than the one I have. I bet people feel like that about sitcoms based on their jobs, like in all fields, but it's the first time I felt that way because I guess there's never really been a kind of hit sitcom based on uh, game dev. But yeah, it's it's I think it's as as far as like, showing how a game studio works and what problems a game studio works on to make a game i think it's i think it's pretty good i think it's i think it simplifies i think it, it it definitely kind of fictionalizes that and there's definitely the issue of kind of it's being made by a game studio and that maybe makes it a little bit more generous to the bosses of game studios than it, it needs to be but yeah i'd say in general it's pretty it's pretty good yeah it's it's, it's a good show I, I i i was surprised by it because the first time that it was shown it looked really cheesy and i was like goodness me uh but it's it's, it's good it's good you should watch it robin if you get the chance i know you don't watch anything <laughs> but uh <laughs> if anyone listening just uh try it out if it's really good yes uh you worked with uh who did who did john Wick? is it warner bros uh lionsgate lionsgate yes you worked with lionsgate yeah. to, to make a game what was that like what's the process like there like how much restriction is there it's like image rights with like uh the character of john wick mm. uh is 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 the actor involved keanu does he have like a say like oh you like <laughs> obviously keanu is in john wick like they lands get on john wick the, the, the IP, yeah right but then the likeness is yeah like what's is there any like what's the spice with all of that <laughs> <laughs> what's the spice so it's it's incredibly complicated is the honest answer like and it's and like with all licensing across like you know so any kind of film ip in particular but like any studio interaction it's complicated like it's always massively complicated um everyone kind of has different objectives essentially like different things they're trying to achieve with it which is totally reasonable um so i don't want to talk specific i will say lionsgate were great to work with but like i don't want to go too specific on like business secrety stuff but I will say just generally, yeah, like ultimately what it comes down to is just a bunch of conversations. Um, you talk about everything, you ask kind of every nerdy question you could think to ask about the IP. Um, and then they give you kind of answers to those questions if they can, or they'll like, you know, they'll 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 put you in touch with like the filmmakers or with actors or whatever to kind of figure out details. Um and it's it's a it's a big process. Like with 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 that game, um, I worked with a producer friend of mine called um, Ben Andak, and basically his job on the project was handling the back and forth with the studio and kind of uh, working out what we could do, what we couldn't do, uh, what would what would work best for what everyone was trying to achieve. Um, and yeah, with John Wick, the the brief basically was just make something interesting, please. 
um, which I think we delivered on. Like, I think they wanted something. They didn't want something that was kind of the obvious solution to how do you make a John Wick video game? They wanted something that would stand out. Lionsgate is this kind of, I guess they call themselves like independently minded, but they're kind of, um, they're basically like, they, they are very, they're, the, they're like the, the, the biggest small studio in Hollywood. They've kind of had several big hits with relatively low budget films. So like, um, uh, Twilight and uh, Hunger Games and John Wick, right? These are not like mega expensive uh, box office hit movies that then did become box office hits, you know? So there's this kind of, this intention they have of kind of keeping things a bit arty and a bit weird and a bit different. Uh, and we were part of that. And I think that was incredibly kind of clever of them to kind of reach out to indies to do that kind of work. So that worked really well. Um, in terms of like the specifics of like, actors and stuff yeah like again it ultimately comes down to like contracts it comes down to like what likenesses sometimes a, a movie studio will just kind of fully buy out the likenesses to you know of the actors who are in the thing um sometimes it will be like a case-by-case -case basis um in in the case of when you're working with actors as well sometimes it will be um you know that they maybe they maybe you have the rights to their likeness but like no one wants to you know piss off that actor so you you work with the actor to kind of get their approvals and stuff so it can be it can be kind of complicated in that sense um and it makes 100 sense right because the actors uh inevitably want to maintain you know their their job is their face right so it's very important that their face is kind of correct um and that their face kind of is how they want it to be and stuff like that so you have lots of conversations but that's ultimately what it comes down to just lots and lots and lots of conversations and back and forth and generally if everyone around the table is kind of trying to pull in the same direction those feedback rounds can be pretty quick because ultimately if you've talked about it it's the same as like you know in a relationship right like if you talk to your loved one about everything and kind of you know you both know what the other one wants and needs etc then it can be a very kind of easy relationship. Generally, the, the couples that fight a lot are the couples that don't talk, right? Who are surprised by things that the, the other party kind of wants later down the road. And that's kind of similar with this kind of relationship where if you've got that kind of constant communication, it can be really good. Um, and it was with that project. So we, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just a process. Um, unfortunately for us, again, the goals were aligned in that they wanted us to make something weird and we did <laughs> and it worked well. Very cool. So did you approach them or did they approach you? How did that work? So they they approached uh, Good Shepherd, who were the publisher. And and I think I think they were talking to Good Shepherd about loads of stuff, um, as is usually the case. Like most in the games industry, most companies are talking to other companies, right? Like at a certain level, like you just take meetings with, with other companies and you just kind of keep on top of like what each other is doing and try and find opportunities. And I think I'd come up that, you know, Lionsgate wanted... Uh, John Wick video game, Good Shepherd had kind of been interested in that, but like, you know, realized they didn't want to do something kind of like, because obviously with John Wick, the obvious thing is just to do like, you know, generic third person shooter. Like that would be the obvious kind of solution to the problem. And they didn't want to do that. And they started chatting internally about kind of, well, who would make an interesting John Wick game? And I think the name came up pretty kind of quickly in that conversation they came to me I, I guess probably they went to other people as well I don't know but you, you would expect them to have done um and they came to me and just said what would you do with John Wick and I pitched like yeah essentially what we made which was kind of a, a weird strategy game where you're kind of inside his head working out how he thinks his way through a fight scene um 
and they liked it. And so we, I remember me and Good Shepherd then went to Hollywood and pitched that to Lionsgate and kind of explained what our what our vision was. And they went, so it was the Lionsgate made it known they wanted a game. Good Shepherd kind of teamed up with me to try and pitch an idea for that and Lionsgate went for it. Illuminating. I hope that answered your <laughs> question, Dennis. He seemed real curious. Yes, yes, it has. <laughs> I was, I was. I mean, that stuff always has like fascinating details. Like I'm sure some other like IPs, like don't change Elsa's like, I don't know, highlights in her hair or something. So... Oh, I've certainly like, I've certainly like, I've, I've heard those stories as well. I mean, the, rea the reality is often you hear those stories like years and years later because everyone's under NDA. But yeah, it's, um, it's ultimately, yeah, as long as there's conversations, as long as everyone knows what everyone else wants, then it generally, I think, pretty goes pretty smoothly, or at least as in my experience. I guess this, <laughs> you answered part of it because how I wanted to phrase the question this time was that was something like, the games that inspired you, and you, you mm. already said that, you know, Metal Gear. <laughs> and I don't know, how, how has that changed over the years? Like, uh, obviously, you know, as time passes on, it can't be the same game that's going to inspire mm. you. So, like, what modern relevant games are, like, you know, always at the back of your head that, oh, this is something which I'm taking cues and notes from. Um, I think yeah, from, stuff you played recently on that front. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly find I find AAA really interesting from that perspective, just because you know, often with AAA, what's interesting as a developer, especially as an indie developer playing a AAA game, is you're definitely you're seeing you're playing the you know the culmination of millions of dollars worth of game development obviously but also millions of dollars worth of like player research and play testing so when you're playing a triple a game you can kind of often benefit from seeing how they've solved problems because you know those problems have been tested and checked out and put in front of players and you can kind of essentially get a lot of that for free by playing triple a games likewise like playing a triple a game that feels really good and then finding like the gdc talk by the person who implemented that gameplay stuff right that that's something that again like those companies spend so much money to work out and then um <laughs> i'm dennis dennis is being cheeky in the text chat um <laughs> the, but but like you know, they spend a lot of money trying to work out and then you can kind of come along and benefit. And I'm not talking about like QA. I'm not talking about like bug testing. I'm talking about, um, you know, player testing. So like what's fun, what feels good. Um, mm -hmm. A great example of this um, is in volume. Uh, there's a uh, really straightforward AAA mechanic. So in a AAA game, if you're pushing your thumbstick to make your character run towards a wall, um, and, and this is a great test to do on indie games. I'm going to ruin several indie games for people listening to this. But like, if you run towards the wall and then you hit into the wall, by physics, if you're running at a wall, like at a diagonal, you should kind of scrape along the wall, right? Because you're applying all that force in that direction. Mm -hmm. And you should kind of scrape along that wall. And in a lot of indie games, that's exactly what happens. But in most AAA games now, um, what actually happens is the game goes, okay, this player doesn't want to just run at this wall. We're going to smooth what they're doing so they run kind of alongside the wall. 
until they move their thumb again and then we'll we'll worry about it later. It's a really good kind of test to see, like basically it's a good way of telling if you're playing a AAA game or not. It's what happens when you run diagonally a wall. Anyway, that's that solution, that kind of thing that makes games feel a bit better is something that probably the first company to do it spent millions, A, finding out what the problem was, B, designing five different solutions, 10 different solutions to that problem, then coding it, then testing the solution they'd made. And then they found the best possible version of that mechanic. And then they put that in their game and then everyone copies them. And me copying that thing where we kind of smoothed that input took me an afternoon. One guy on my own, who's not even very good at coding could do that in an afternoon. But the reason I could do that was because I could build on the shoulders of all the people who'd come before me in that AAA space who'd, who'd solved that problem very expensively for themselves. And so AAA often feels like, uh, when you when you play AAA games, if like me, you're fixated on kind of game feel and, and making stuff that feels polished in that way, uh, AAA is often just like a really great masterclass in kind of what, you know, what works. Or you play a AAA game and you don't like how it plays and you learn stuff from that as well and figure out kind of other ways of doing things. So I would encourage lots of indies to like play more AAA because I think there is, there's lessons in there. Whether or not you love the game in its totality, is kind of irrelevant, but you can definitely learn things from them. Um, and it, it kind of feels like cheating a little bit because you're kind of getting the benefit, um, especially if you then go and, you know, like I said, watch the GDC talk. Um, there's there's stuff like, um, I liked, I, I really liked actually this, the PlayStation Spider-Man game that came out uh, a couple of years ago. Um, mm. And then, uh, and, and that's the swinging in that game. And swinging, a Spider-Man swing had been done in previous games. Uh, Spider-Man 2's famously got an excellent swing, but the one in this game felt different, felt special. And then you can go on YouTube and you can watch the GGC talk from the guy whose job for four years was to make that web swing feel good. And he'll show you the graphs of how that input is mapped and he'll show you how that process worked and how it locks onto things and where it fakes your input to make it feel just that little bit better. And now if I wanted to, you know, I could go and it would take me longer than an afternoon, but I could make like a rough prototype of that in Unity and I could have web slinging in my game. And it would take me a lot less than four years because I can build on all of the lessons that guy learned. And I think that's one thing that games in general is very good at is we're all show-offs. Once we make something cool, we want to show it off. We want people to see it. And therefore, if you're someone else making cool things, you can kind of learn from each other. So so yeah, when I'm playing games, um, I'm often playing AAA stuff for that reason. I'm kind of looking to see what the people who can spend more money than I can dream of making their games feel good, what they're doing. And that's often really kind of instructive and or, or I hate it and I do something completely different. Like it's it, it's it's useful both ways. <laughs> That's the kind of answer that I wanted when I kind of phrased the question differently. Because normally I just ask, "Hey, what are you playing?" But you know, yeah. given that you're actually a game dev, that's the kind of different point of view which I was looking for. Mm. Cool. And I think so with we, that um... we are out of time. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, massive thanks, thanks Mike, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. And I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And I mean that. It was genuinely really cool. <laughs>